0: Please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales series podcast. Today, from the Grave Tales, Great Ocean Road, Geelong to Port Ferry volume, Charles Brownlow. Charles Brownlow, his namesake is famous in AFL circles, yet he played much of his footy for Geelong under an assumed name. This curious story tells why the name Brownlow almost wasn't famous at all.
1: Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? It's probably the best known name in uh, Aussie rules footy and yet it almost wasn't. We'll get to that. The Brownlow Medal is the the highest award in the AFL. For those who may not know, it's given for the fairest and best player in the competition each year and awarded at a glittering ceremony uh, at the end of the year, which is, of course, now telecast and uh, it's very big news.
0: There's probably a lot of AFL fans like me, however, who know, of course, of the Brownlow Award, but I didn't actually know who Charles Brownlow was, or that it actually was even a person.
1: Well, Charles Brownlow was a bloke who took up playing footy not that long after the game was invented in the late 1800s. He was uh, at Geelong. He began his career in 1880. He played for Geelong in the VFA, the Victorian Football Association. Before the VFL was formed, he was inducted into the Cats Hall of Fame only reasonably recently, really, uh, 2016.
0: And we both know that's the best team. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I suspect uh, there's a little bias in that comment. Um, he was regarded when he was um, inducted into the Hall of Fame as a highly reliable wingman with sound judgment, defensive skills, and a penetrating drop kick. Who uh, was ahead of his time tactically and shone at vital moments?
0: Go, Brownlow.
1: <laughs> he captained the club to a premiership in 1883 and 1884 in the middle of the season he retired from full-time footy for business reasons mm-hmm. but he said at the time look if you're short uh, give me a yell because I'll, I'll be around
0: isn't that funny to think you know compared to today where you're signed up and you're training all year round just give us a call if we need play it.
1: yeah well he How did funny. that until uh, until 1890 if the cats uh, was short of someone on a Saturday afternoon.
0: That's classic, terrific. So what happened to him after his footy before we actually find out what the twist in the Brownlow story is?
1: Okay, well, he retired from footy, as I said, uh, 1884 and played until 1890. But he really made his name after he finished footy. He contributed remarkably as an administrator uh, he mm. was 38 years uh, the Geelong Football Club Secretary, 20 years as Geelong's delegate on the VFL board after the VFL was formed, which he had mm. a big part in the say of how that all happened. Mm. He was uh, five years as Vice President of the VFL, delegate to the Australasian Footy Council, five years as President of that body. and. Um, And he had a lot to do with the formation of the game, the the formation of the rules around, you know, 1918, 1919, that sort of era.
0: Mm, A big name in footy. Yeah,
1: and he he made uh, remarkable uh, contributions to the game. And so for that reason, they named the big medal after him.
0: Mm, Fantastic. So tell us the story then of Charles Brownlow, because it was almost not going to be the Brownlow medal, was it? (laughs) Well, yeah,
1: it wasn't. Brownlow uh, was a big name in Geelong. They had a a business there. His father was a strict disciplinarian and ran the business. And in those days, of course, when he started playing, there was no such thing as a Saturday afternoon off. Uh, You worked six days a week and you got Sunday off. And so Charlie Brownlow's dad would stay back at the shop uh, until normal closing hours. Mm. He wasn't that keen in seeing young Brownlow uh, waste his afternoons, his Saturday afternoons, playing football. Mm. He'd much rather see him um, engaged in you know, in, in useful occupation. One day, however, uh, when the word was out that it was going to be a ripper game between Geelong and Melbourne, he went down to Corio over, which is where they played their uh, footy in those days, and he got there a bit late, so he was up the back of the crowd, big crowd for this game,
0: so this is Mr Brownlow Senior who's gone Brown, to a no senior, yeah, go on to Mr Brownlow Senior, gone to the footy. Caught up in the uh, excitement of everybody saying this is a game to go to.
1: Absolutely. So he's there and the game's um, progressing. And as further it goes, he notices this bloke playing by the name of Green. And he says to the guys around him, who, who's that bloke? Oh, that's green. He's good. Yeah, he's good. And so the further the game went, the, the more wrapped he became in this green bloke. And the, the blokes around him were sniggering and having a bit of a laugh and jabbing each other in the ribs with their elbows and pointing at him. And finally, one of them said to him, look, uh, don't you know who green is? He said, what do you mean? He said, that's your son. He said, you're kidding. <laughs> no. And so young Brownlow, to avoid... Either angering or upsetting, I'm not sure which. His father played a lot of his footy under the name of Green, Charles Green. Charles Green, and the uh, his father, of course, then being told by his mates uh, up the back of the stand that uh, that this was his son playing, took a whole new shine to his footy career. I reckon he never missed a, a Geelong match after that.
0: But that's a credit to his dad too, because he could have, you know, said, "Look, you've deceived me. You're never going out to footy again." But you know, for him to get on board and, and get behind him, that's fantastic.
1: Yep. And that was reported in the newspaper that he was dumbfounded by his son's uh, game. And by the way, just for the record, Geelong romped home uh, in that match against Melbourne.
0: Of course they did. Probably playing Bombers, (laughs) were they? Oh, Melbourne. Oh, Oh, okay. Sorry, that's your team. So there was no medal before that?
1: Uh, no, I mean well. That was the formation of, of the VFL, which mm. went on, of course, to be the AFL <laughs> later on. The VFA being mm. a kind of a second string footy level in Melbourne through the uh, the early parts of the the game. Mm. But of course, you, you know, for for his father to be keen to see him working on a Saturday afternoon wasn't unusual. I can remember as a kid, you know, footy players had jobs. They were just yeah. like normal people. They worked in the shop next to you or down the road from you. I, I lived in the inner suburbs of Melbourne. For a while and uh, there was a bloke there called John Schultz who was a well-renowned ruckman for Footscray and his dad had a bottle shop uh, just down the road from us and Saturday morning I'd go up with dad when he went to get his supplies. And there'd be John serving behind the counter and about 12 o'clock he'd chuck his bag in the back of his car and off he'd go to footy.
0: Isn't that classic? And
1: they'd trade Tuesday and Thursday night. you know.
0: And I wonder, did they play any better or worse than they do today?
1: Oh, well, I don't know. It's an entirely different game now than it was then. To hear of blokes getting paid, you know, millions of dollars to play the game. Is unbelievable when you look back at those blacks. Again, it was very different. I mean, now we have the huge impact of television, mm. which has taken the, the game's popularity around the country and around the world for that matter. Mm. In those days, when Schultze played, it was all over by 5 o'clock on Saturday. I mean, all the games were on Saturday afternoon. There were t- 12 teams in the VFL. Wow, and all
0: played, what, 2 o'clock or something?
1: 10 past 2, finished
0: at 10 to 5. Gee, so you saw your one game and that's all you could see.
1: 5 o'clock, there was yeah. the ladder. You yeah. knew uh, what had happened for the whole weekend's footy.
0: And for AFL fans like us who, you know, from Thursday night, we're ready, we're watching right up to Sunday <laughs> afternoon. That's horrendous. Yeah. There's been stories around that as well as to whether, you know, you're better and more disciplined if you have some work in any sporting arena. That having an occupation actually helps a player. It allows them to be more disciplined, they're less focused on their injuries, especially the young boys. It's a day to fill when you're not working. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it, I think it probably helped a lot in those days. I mean, the game was, uh, and still is to an extent, but in those days particularly, was tribal. The teams were all um, inner-city Melbourne suburbs. Mm. You know, Richmond, Collingwood, Footscray. Geelong was the one that was out of town a bit. Yeah. And so, I mean, you'd hear old ladies at the footy who could name every bloke on the side. And, yeah. and they'd yell out personal comment, I saw you in the street the other day, yeah, Billy yeah. Brown, you shouldn't have been having that beer.
0: <laughs> you know, yeah. and,
1: and uh, it was it was tribal and yeah. everybody knew everybody because they worked in the shops yeah. just down the street. It's
0: their know. community. But you and I both have a, an AFL background, seasons now start as early again as october november for training training, uh, and they get their few months off but i was with the brisbane lions when they were the brisbane bears when they very first formed and we started off at the gabba and i was public relations for them public relations coordinator and we had our small team there and peter knights was our coach Knightsy. then we got moved down to carrara of course when Mm -hmm. Christopher case put the light towers up And you reported down there, and you remember what the grounds were like in those days.
1: I went there once. (laughs) I did. I spent spent longer getting in and out of the car park than I did at the footy.
0: Oh, shocking. And, you know, I used to struggle in those days because we were the bad news bears. We were on the bomber ladder. I couldn't give tickets away. I'd have a dozen tickets. (laughs) No, seriously. As the PR person, I'd have a dozen tickets in my pockets to give to journos and their families. I'd have six left at the end of the game. And because we weren't winning, media didn't want to know us. And I'd get to the stage where I'd send, you know, Roger Merritt to dream well with his family for a photo opportunity. You know, I'd be yeah. desperate and I'd get Nightsy to sit next to me just before match day so, and, and we'd ring the radio stations to get a graph from him, you know, so he could say something and hope a bit of publicity would come up. But... They were tough and exciting days. They really were.
1: It was it was the beginning of a whole new uh, look in footy. Mm. I mean, as I said, it had been a very tribal thing, the inner suburbs of, of Melbourne, mm. uh, with the exception of Geelong, that was really just down the road. Over a period of time, it went from that to a national game, mm. which it now is. Many people, of course, especially the older folk, still see it as that tribal Victorian thing. It's grown beyond that now.
0: Yeah, I wonder, too... Because once you get to a grand file time, instinctively, and maybe it's just because we're older <laughs> AFL fans, you still always hope for those traditional teams in there, rightly or wrongly. <laughs>
1: If you live in Adelaide or Perth or Sydney, uh, you probably don't.
0: Well, that's true, but it is exciting because well, you know there was a time when I knew a few Brisbane players who were signed up and they had to go down to Melbourne to join teams, yeah. and that's a great shame. And you know, I just can't believe all the talent that's come out of Tassie, and there's no Tassie side yeah, yet.
1: Yeah, don't and, start me.
0: Yeah, I'll and I start one. you. <laughs> so Charles Brownlow—that's where the medal came from.
1: They named the uh, the medal after him, the Best and fairest. Mm. That was first awarded in 1924, which was the year in which he died. And it was won by a Geelong bloke called um, Edward Greaves, whose nickname was Kaji. I don't quite know why. And he polled seven votes throughout the season. It was a different sort of polling in those days. The umpire gave one vote, and that was it. Oh, okay. uh, whereas now, of course, there yeah. are three umpires and they give three, two and one. count, therefore, is a, a lot more interesting, even if it's a lot longer.
0: There's nothing more prestigious than being a Brownlow medalist.
1: No, that's right. And, of course, if you're good enough to win it a couple of times, it's, it's very special. There are a few people who've won it twice, and some people who've won it three times. Uh, Hayden Bunton Senior for Fitzroy, 31, 32 and 35. Dick Reynolds from Essendon. Uh, 34, 37 and 38 and Bobby Skilton, um, who I can still remember seeing playing from South Melbourne, uh, 1959, 63 and 68. And of course uh, Ian Stewart, who won two at St Kilda and won with Richmond. Uh, the two at St Kilda were 65, which was uh, the Essendon Grand Final, which I was at, and Essendon beat them. Uh, and Ooh. the next year, of course, was the Grand Final that we all wished we were at uh, which was 1966 when um, uh, St Kilda beat Collingwood, wow. Not by 10 goals, but by that magical uh, margin of one point. People still say to this day, you want to beat Collingwood by 10 goals? No, I'd rather beat them by a point.
0: Yeah, look, just beating Collingwood's good. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> <You are. laughs> Sorry, Collingwood fans.
1: Um, so there you go. And it's always been curious to me that the best player of the 20th century, Lethal Lee, oh, Lee Matthews, of Matthews. course, coached in Brisbane, never won a Brownlee. Truly? no. Perhaps it was his playing style. Maybe
0: because he was lethal, (laughs) (laughs) dare we say.
1: Well, Charles Brownlow died in 1924. He was 62 years old. He got some sort of paralysis Mm. that left him unable to carry out his normal day-to-day tasks and unfortunately passed away. He left behind his wife Matilda and four children and he's buried in the Geelong Eastern Cemetery. His grave is a little hard to find, but when you do, you'll know it. It's got a certain football club logo on it.
0: You have been listening to a story from Grave Tales, the series, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or on our website, or put together your own group and come along on our Great Ocean Road Tour.